Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're continuing in the doctrine of sin. Tonight, we're going to look at the topic of the problem of evil. What do I mean by that? Well, we have a world that is full of suffering, sadness, wickedness, and evil. It's a reality in connection with the fallen world in which we have. This is a philosophical question that has been posed at Christianity. Well, really at religion in general, at Christianity in particular, for uh, a little more than 2,000 years now. The first uh, philosopher that brought up this particular problem was a philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And he was a Greek philosopher about 300 or so B.C. And he he coined this phrase, excuse me. Y'all pray for my voice. I guess we'll go till I can't talk anymore. <clears throat> Hopefully that'll get me through the next 30 minutes. <clears throat> Epicurus, David Hume kind of clarified it. David Hume's a philosopher in the 1700s. The quote in front of you is this. If God is not able to destroy evil, then he is impotent. If he is not willing to destroy evil, then he is malevolent. And if he is both able and willing, then why is there evil? And so if you take that philosophical conundrum raised uh, 2,300 years ago or so, rephrased, restated, and retargeted by David Hume about 300 or so years ago, David Hume particularly aimed that criticism at biblical Christianity. And so the the question back to Christians is this, if we believe that God is all-powerful, and then we believe that God is absolutely holy and good and loving, Uh, then why does he allow evil to take place in the world in which we live? I mean, we live in a world where God created it. In Genesis 1, he created it very good, and yet we have a very fallen world, a sinful and a wicked world. This type of question against Christianity gets a lot of traction in and around catastrophes and disasters. Uh, Why hurricanes, right, that would go through Florida and do billions of dollars worth of damage, And certainly, houses can be rebuilt, businesses can be restored, but a life can't be given back. And so when you have, I believe it was more than 30 deaths in the most recent hurricane, you know, why do things like that happen in terms of natural disasters? To get more personal, we could go into the sphere of why do things happen that are evil to other people? Why is it that some evil, wicked person would abuse another person? Whether that would be an adult to a child or a husband to a wife, Why do those things happen? They're evil and they're wicked. And that is something that that Christianity has to kind of account for, explain. Why the Nazi Holocaust? When a madman by the name of Adolf Hitler attempted to annihilate an entire race of people and killed more than 6 million Jews just because they were a different race of people. I mean, those are questions that every person has to deal with and address But particularly that's targeted at Christians because we believe and we believe the Bible teaches that we have a God who is loving and we have a God who is all-powerful and a God who is able. So what do we do with this? Well, let me make a a contention. The problem of evil, when Epicurus initially um, developed it as a question, he was not talking about a biblical God. The, The first time he mentioned that, he was talking about the gods of the... Greco-Roman pantheism or pantheon, like Zeus and those type of gods. That's who he had in mind. He didn't have the biblical God. He didn't know the biblical God. That was not something he would have been aware of. Of course, that's not the case with David Hume and with others. But let me make a contention. That question is a philosophical question, not particularly a theological question. We're going to look to the Bible for some answers but one of the things we need to get, get at, the, at the heart of, the Bible doesn't ask this question and doesn't really pose an answer directly to this question. There are some assumptions made in Scripture, and there are some clarity made in Scripture. Mike, thank you for an extra bottle of water. I think I'm going to need it. Uh, so the philosophical qu- options to the problem of evil would be this. The first one is, there is no God who is all-powerful. So that's one answer, okay? You got the problem of evil. So one way, one thing that could be done in the problem of evil is to take away an all-powerful God. 
Some theologians attempt to do this. Uh, in his book, God at War, Greg Boyd basically makes this case. He is what we would call an open theist. It's a fancy theological terminology for someone who, who essentially doesn't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. God doesn't know everything. God's not in control of everything. And so in that kind of articulation of this issue, then God is not all-powerful. He, he might be very powerful. He might be abundantly powerful, but he's not completely powerful. Well, there are significant biblical problems with that approach. Uh, one of the major problems with that approach, if God is not supremely and all-powerful, then you and I might be in a lot of trouble. Because if God is not all-powerful, how can he keep the promises that he's made? If he's not all-powerful and all-sovereign, how can he make sure that all of the things that need to take place for our redemption take place? And of course, the Bible teaches that he orchestrated all the events of Jesus' first coming that resulted in our salvation. But if he's not all-powerful, are we sure that he can bring about the world to its appropriate end one day and us be on the side of victory? So that's one option. There's a second option there. There is no God who is completely good. So the opposing kind of option would be that God's not really good. Good and evil are intention. Uh, one of the things that that could look like would essentially be uh, a yin and a yang worldview. The Chinese Confucian type uh, Buddhist ideology where you have to have a little bit of good to have a little bit of evil and you have to have evil and good to be intention in order for both of those to exist. See that in pop culture all the time. That, that's popularized by things like Star Wars, where there's the light side of the force and the dark side of the force, and they have to be in balance. So it's a, a mindset that good and evil are kind of on, on this uh, equal plane. And so in order for you to have good, you have to have evil. In order for you to have evil, you have to have good. And ultimately, the problem with that worldview is which one's going to come out on top? Or will there be one that comes out on top? That's a very Eastern mythological idea to the problem of evil. Another uh, suggestion as far as an answer to the problem of evil would be this. Evil is simply an illusion. Uh, this is an uh, ideology that was originally developed by a philosopher by the name of Spinoza. Uh, and it has been picked up and popularized today by Mary Baker Eddy in, as the founder of Christian Science. And essentially the mindset is, or the idea is, that evil is something made up. It's an illusion. It's just a trick of your mind. So if you know how to function in your mind enough, you can make yourself not be sick. Or you can destroy cancer cells just by using your brain. They're not real. They're not there. Well... That's just kind of ludicrous. I mean, we don't have that much power within our own minds. And Christian science ultimately elevates humanity to the place of deity and minimizes God and drops him down to a level below us. It's really problematic as far as a worldview. There are probably some other philosophical options to the problem of evil, but those are the main ones. Let's look at what the Bible says. The Bible is a theology book with theological propositions that do tangentially address philosophical questions like the problem of evil, but they don't directly answer it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does the Bible say and try to come up with, okay, how do we as Christians respond if someone looks at us and says, you believe in an all-powerful God, you go to church on Sunday and sing to Him and, and you pray to Him, how can He allow a school shooting to take place? How can he allow a madman to, to do something so evil as take the lives of children? How can he allow rapists and, and murderers to exist? What do we do with that particular question? So what we're going to try to do is look at what the Bible teaches. So the first kind of affirmation there comes from uh, Genesis 3 and Romans 8. It's this. The Bible teaches that the fall of man, the fall of man explains evil and suffering in all its forms, and regarding all its relationships. So in other words, one of the things that we need to grasp with the fall of man, it wasn't just a sin in the garden that had an immediate um, and, and very limited effect on Adam and Eve. That sin in the garden caused the entire creation 
to fall underneath the curse of sin. Not only was Adam cursed and he had to work, and not only was Eve cursed in the pains of childbirth uh, and the tension with her husband. By the way, did you realize that pre-fall, pre, uh, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect relationship? They never argued. They never disagreed with one another. They didn't fight. They didn't yell. Adam didn't lay his laundry out the wrong way in their, in their garden house. Eve didn't criticize Adam too much when he laid his you know, laundry out in the, in the garden. I mean, they didn't, they didn't have any sin, any tension before the fall. It wasn't there. And that, 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 whatever that, uh, that phrase means when it says, your desire shall be for your husband, and there are all sort of theological and philosophical questions about that, what that looks like, is that a, is that a, is that a reflection of the complementary uh, view that we have of theology? Whatever that means, and I don't think, it, I don't think that, that aspect of the fall is, it, uh, discounts the way that God designed us to complement one another. Nevertheless, uh, whatever it means, it means that the tensions we have in our relationships are due to the sin that was committed all the way back in the Garden of Eden and that have been reflected in the sins that you and I continue to commit because we're sinners. So that event, the fall, created all sort of problems. It created problems... With us and God, it created problems with us, us and people. It created problems with us and nature. The reason that the world doesn't function as it should, the reason we have hurricanes, the reason we have natural disasters, the reason your garden doesn't operate like it should, you have weeds, stink bugs. By the way, uh, we got in the car this afternoon. I had to run my kids home to get a book for my wife and take their, their, their uh, backpacks home. We got in the car to get ready to leave. I put the car in reverse, and my son screamed like a banshee in the back seat of the car. I had no idea what was going on. Is there a snake in the car? Is there a giant spider in the car? No, it was a stink bug <laughs> sitting next to him. But why do stink bugs scare? Why do snakes scare? Why do spiders scare? Because we're at odds with nature. We have a problem with nature because of sin. Um, Francis Schaeffer says that um, not only are, is man separated from God, but we're separated from ourselves internally. We have psychological problems, emotional, physical. All of those are a pro- product of our revolt. He goes on to say, man's significant act in revolt. This is Francis Schaeffer in his uh, classic book, Genesis in Space and Time. Man's significant act in revolt has made the world abnormal. Thus, there is not a total unbroken continuity back to the way the world originally was. Non-Christian philosophers almost universally agree in seeing everything as normal, assuming things are always as they have been. And of course, this is very important to the explanation of evil in the world. But it is not only that, it is one way to understand the distinction between the naturalistic, non-Christian answers whether spoken in philosophic, scientific, or even religious language, and the Christian answer. The distinction is this, that as I look about me, I know that I live in an abnormal world. And and so what Schaefer recognizes and affirms so clearly in that quote, he says, the reason that we have questions about evil in the world is quite frankly because we see the world from a very different lens than many others who would look at the world. They look at the world, and yeah, they recognize there's evil and suffering and difficulty and challenge and problems, and they have to come up with some answers too, but they look at the world as if the world is as it always has been or is as it's always going to be. And that's not biblical Christianity. What the Bible teaches is that the world was as it should have been in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And what makes the world abnormal is what took place in Genesis 3. And what we're looking forward to is a return to a pre-sin normal in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. I'll come back to that more in a moment. But the, the, the simple explanation, this is not an altogether sufficient explanation, but the simple explanation for the problem of evil, as far as us as Christians are concerned, is this, the fall in Genesis 3 has caused all of the brokenness, all of the wickedness, all of the sin that we see. Now, that explains 
the way we see the world. It doesn't necessarily answer the question of the problem of evil, but it does offer an explanation. The reason that's incredibly important is because the problem of evil and suffering in the world is not only a problem for Christians. We're not the only ones that have to account for evil and suffering in the world because we live in a world full of evil and suffering. Every worldview has to account for evil and suffering. Uh, I, I just think that the biblical worldview accounts for it far better than many of the other options that we posed earlier. Uh, so Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Romans 8 talks about the fact that our world has fallen. Creation itself is groaning, longing for a return to what God wants it to be. We'll read that text in just a moment, but we'll move on. Uh, point number two, or implication number two, rather. The Bible teaches that God was not surprised by our sin, and it also teaches that God is sovereign over sin. This is what is fascinating biblically. While the Bible doesn't answer Epicurus's question, it doesn't provide, okay, this is exactly why God allowed sin to happen. I wish it did, and they're all sort of speculative theological kind of tracks that we could go down. But the Bible doesn't answer that question per se. What the Bible does affirm over and over and over again is that God was not surprised by what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And he wasn't surprised by all the sins that would follow. And he's still in control even though there's sin in the world. Let me give you some examples. Example number one is this, that the Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world... Christ was crucified. So, now that may really trouble you, that God created a world that he knew would fall. But that's exactly what the Bible says that God did. He planned for the redemption of his fallen creation before he spoke his fallen creation into existence, or his creation into existence that would eventually fall. He wasn't surprised by what happened in the garden. He wasn't caught off guard. This wasn't like, oh my goodness, what in the world happened? What did that snake do? What did my, these people do that were created in my image? God was not surprised by our sin. Now, that may trouble us from the philosophical viewpoint of, okay, what does that mean about God and sin? You know, he's not the author of it. The Bible says in James chapter 1 that God cannot tempt, nor can God be tempted by sin. He is holy he, he, he is not the author of sin in the sense that he caused it or he made it happen. But God did create a world where sin could take place. I mean, he allowed that in his creative capacity. For whatever reason, I think at some point in heaven, I'm going to ask him that question. Maybe I'll be brave enough at some point to say, God, why? why? Or maybe I won't need to. Maybe we'll know that. Nevertheless, God was not surprised. And God is sovereign over sin. If you go to Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph and his brothers, you know, they sold him into slavery. The arrogant, you know, kind of braggadocious brother, hey, I've had all these dreams and all y'all are going to bow down to me in my dreams. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a part of me that, I, I, I mean, the brothers were wrong, but do you blame them? Some of y'all had younger siblings that got away with everything. Anybody in here a younger sibling that got away with everything? You don't realize you did, though. Uh, your older siblings know you got away with everything. That's just the way it was. And we, we firstborn are altogether responsible, which is why Reuben saved uh, Joseph's life, by the way. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm, I'm going down, a, uh, I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail, a tangent. Sorry about that. Nevertheless, Joseph was sold into slavery. And when Jacob died, the brothers said, hey, don't do anything to us. That was basically their complaint. Dad's dead. You know, they begged Joseph for grace. And here was Joseph's response. Verse 20 of chapter 50 of the book of Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph understood something about God being sovereign over even the sin of his brothers. It was very wrong that they sold him into slavery. It was very wrong. It was terrible what Joseph endured. As arrogant as he might have been, as sinful as he might have been, he didn't deserve to be a slave in Egypt. He didn't deserve to be lied about by Potiphar's wife. He didn't deserve to be you know, punished in all of those ways that were 
in, in essence, while he's not innocent before God, he was innocent of all the crimes he was accused of, right? And yet God orchestrated the events of Joseph in Egypt to protect his sinful brothers who would come back and be rescued because of what God did with Joseph in Egypt. And so one of the things that that helps us grasp as followers of Jesus is that God is over sin. He's sovereign over it. I mean, how else in the world can God take some of the most evil things that have happened to people in the world and turn them to bring about a a reality of redemption in somebody's life? Only God can do that. And only God can do that if he is sovereign over sin. And he is. That's what Genesis 50 tells us. You've got the story of Job. I mean, you want to really get messed up in terms of your perspective of God and, and suffering and sin. Read through the story of Job. You know, in chapter 1, do you remember who introduced Job? You remember how that goes? Genesis, Job 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, that is the accuser, came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you, consider, have you considered my servant Job? God is the one that said to Satan, have you taken a look at this, my servant? And, and Satan's response back was, you know, he only serves you because he's protected. God gave Satan freedom to do all sorts of terrible things to Job. Tragic things. Taking his family from him. Taking his children from him. I mean, I, I, I know what it's... I'm a dad. I, but, and and I, I love my wife. And my wife, honest to goodness, I think in her mind the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to either of us would be something happening to our children. I mean, some of your parents, you, you know that. Some of you... God forbid, have maybe experienced something along those lines. Tragic. And God allowed Satan to take all of Job's children. They all died in a disaster. And then all the stuff was taken. And then Satan said, uh, you know, but you haven't let me touch him. And so he experienced boils and all kind of other suffering. And his wife finally told him, curse God and die. Be done with this. And Job never sinned. Not in his mouth, not in his language. And then you get to the end of the story. And Job's been asking all along. Sometimes the thoughts you and I might have, God, where are you? Show up. Tell me what's going on. Let's have a, con- let's have a conversation. I'll take you to court or some of the types of things that, that Job said to God and about God. And jo- God shows up and Job can't talk. You know, God shows up and starts questioning Job. The point of that story is to let us know that there is one who is in charge, and it's not Satan, and it's not Job, and it's not Job's three ignorant friends, and it's not even the suffering. It's not even the difficulty. There's one who's in charge, and it's God. God's sovereign over and beyond our suffering. Let me give you the third implication. The Bible teaches that while sin and suffering are very real, they are not permanent, nor are they ultimate. They're not permanent or ultimate. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Some of you are having a hard time of it. Some of our church families are having a hard time of it. I know some people right now that are going through some types of suffering that are quite immeasurable. At the things they're facing, I don't have answers for. Other professionals don't have answers for. There's not a pill that you can take to take away what they're dealing with. It is difficult and challenging. And what Paul says so encouragingly here, the weight of this present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that we're going to experience. What we're dealing with now is real. It's real, it's difficult, it's ugly. It's worth us sitting with you and and crying with you and suffering alongside of you, empathizing with people as followers of Jesus. We ought to do that, but it's not ultimate. What you're dealing with now is not permanent. It won't be there forever. 
Notice what, how Paul continues. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, uh, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, creation was subjected because of sin. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth till now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees, but we hope for what we don't see, and we wait for it with patience. Likewise, watch this, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You ever wondered uh, how to pray for yourself or somebody else? Here's the good news. God the Holy Spirit is praying for them and for you in a way that is absolutely perfect and appropriate and he knows better than we do. And then you get that wonderful verse, eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Meaning that God's able to bring about good out of even wickedness because wickedness is not permanent and wickedness is not ultimate. There will be a time when wickedness is not. There will be a time when evil is not. And what's the purpose of even those things, those bad things happening, that God will turn to good? Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Without getting into the predestination topic tonight, we are going to do that as we work through the doctrine of salvation. In coming weeks, it'll probably be the first of the year when we get finally to the doctrine of salvation. Without going there, I just want you to note that God's purpose for you being a follower of Him is not heaven. Can I say that again? Some of you are like looking at me like I'm an idiot. God's purpose for saving you is not heaven. Verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's purpose for saving you is to make you look like Jesus. That's why God redeemed you however many years ago you came to faith in Christ. That's why you're not in heaven now. Because he's still making you into the image of Jesus. And that's why he allows suffering and difficulty in our lives. Because he's making us in the image of Jesus. If his goal for you is heaven, you'd have been in heaven when you trusted Jesus to be your savior. It's not his goal. His goal is to make us like Christ. We will ultimately be like Christ, the glorified state, when we get to heaven. But while we're still here, he's using what we're experiencing to make us like Christ. So, these tensions about evil and suffering are real. Let me give you a few takeaways that I, I think might help us on the philosophical level and hopefully on the theological level as well. Number one, reflect on the importance of a biblical worldview, of a biblical worldview that explains suffering and evil resulting from the fall. So I, I'm just going to be quite honest. I've taught this in theology classes and apologetics classes. I've wrestled with this. I've written on this subject I've preached around it at different times. If I had a better answer to the problem of evil, I would have given it tonight. Okay? This has been a tension that people, theologians, Christians, witnesses, people outside the faith have wrestled with for eons and for ages. Why is there evil in the world? Why do terrible things happen to good people like Job? Why is there so much wickedness in the world? And the biblical answer is not an explanation for the reasons behind all those things. The biblical answer is simply an explanation for the reality that we see. In other words, what the fall does in the biblical worldview is it tells us that this is the world in which we live. And then it explains why this is the world in which we live. 
we sinned and we broke the world. The world is abnormal. And so that, that, that is uh, uh, how we have to make sure that we um, see all the things around us. Now, where that helps us, I think, as Christians, as I mentioned before, that every philosophy, worldview, has to give an account for evil. Not just Christianity. And, and if you go back to some of those other options, how about the folks that say evil is an illusion? Pain is not really real. Well, tell that to you folks with arthritis. I don't mean that just kind of, you know, haphazard. Tell that, tell that to somebody who's broken their leg. Pain, pain's just, it's just an anomaly, right? It's just an illusion. It's not really there. No, no, it's really there. Okay? That doesn't explain. And so, at least in the biblical worldview, even if we don't have all the philosophical answers we'd like to have, we at least have an answer that helps us make sense of the world in which we live. I don't know why people go as wicked as Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler, but I can tell you, I can point you to Scripture and say, it doesn't surprise me, nor did it surprise God, because we live in a fallen, broken world. And at least the biblical worldview offers a sufficient explanation for sin, even if it doesn't get behind that and say, well, why in the world would a good God allow sin to be there? All I can tell you is, somehow it showed the greatness of God's glory and grace to forgive people who had a real choice to turn away from Him. Like you and like me. I mean, think about the abundance of God's grace that would forgive terrible, wicked sinners like you and me and be sufficient to forgive anybody who would trust in Jesus. I mean, that's some grace. That, that is glorious grace. And I'm not sure, if we're getting into the philosophical part of it, that that grace could be seen as greatly and as truly if there wasn't an option for people to turn away from God who wanted to show grace. Let me give you a second takeaway. If the reality of sin and suffering provide a philosophical argument against Christianity, and I'm not entirely sure they do, by the way. That's the philosophical argument. I, I think, and if I had more time... I don't and won't go this far tonight, but if I had more time, I, I think I can make a case that evil and suffering are actually actually provide some really healthy apologetic answers for Christianity, in defense of Christianity. Nevertheless, if sin and suffering provide a philosophical argument against Christianity, then good and morality provide a philosophical argument for Christianity. Because good and evil, or, or, or evil rather, Assumes good. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. The quote's in front of you. My argument against God, this is before his conversion. My argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? Of course, I, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So, you take the, the, the problem of evil, suffering, terrible wickedness in the world. Okay, I've got to have an explanation for that as a follower of Jesus. But you, in another worldview, then have to answer, how do we know it's evil and unjust? Where do we get the idea of wickedness and depravity? How can we say that what Adolf Hitler did was evil and wrong? How can you say that if there's no framework for justice, goodness, and morality that is that's superimposed upon the world in which we live? And, and that is... The argument, essentially, from an atheistic perspective. Naturalism. There's not a real good and evil in the world. It's all arbitrary. It's all, it's all self-expressed. It's all internal. Like It's what I think today, and it's what somebody else thinks tomorrow. Well, that may work, sort of, in the sense of how you operate from day to day. But that doesn't work universally. Because then how can anybody be punished for anything that's evil because it's anything really evil? I mean, just the argument that we have morality and good is a fantastic, probably one of the greatest arguments 
uh, for biblical Christianity. Let me give you the, the, the last one. Meaning can only come from a sovereign God who is the solution to evil and suffering. So how do we make sense out of what we deal with? How do we make sense out of what we see? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world broken. We live in a world disjointed. We live in a world with evil. How do we make sense of that world? We try to find meaning in it. Victor Frankl, who suffered in the, um, in the, in the Nazi uh, Holocaust, he was in uh, the concentration camps and survived. He, he wrote a fascinating little book, Man's Search for Meaning, after coming out of the Nazi Holocaust. And, and, and he pretty much did not land in a worldview that's biblical Christianity. He landed in a different place, and he kind of tried to make sense of the world as it was. And we have all of these different articulated ways that we try to make sense of the world. Some worldviews say we're living in this kind of karma and rebirth and this re, you know, reinvention of, of things, and that you know, things are bad now, and if we do okay, we'll re, be reborn into something different, like in a Hinduistic philosophy. And then you get biblical Christianity, and Christianity seems to say something entirely different. Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 19, 28, he said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That word renewal is a word uh, in the Greek language called palingenesis. And in Greek or Stoic philosophy, it was the idea that, okay, if things are bad now, they'll get better because you'll be reborn into somebody different. That was kind of a, a, a pre-Hinduistic reincarnated type of idea. Okay? That was their concept. And what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, using their word, their type of idea, he says at the renewal, when I make all things new, I'm going to sit on my throne. But what Jesus promises is something far different than some kind of karma or some kind of rebirth or some kind of reincarnation. And Jesus proved that what he said was true because he was the only one to ever defeat death. In other words, the cross, and watch this. When we think of suffering and evil, we need to remember that God suffered in the person of Jesus on the cross. So your suffering is not completely removed from God. God, in the person of Jesus, experienced more intense suffering than any of us will ever even dream or imagine. Jesus suffered. Jesus defeated death and suffering with the resurrection. And Jesus not only defeated death and suffering with the resurrection, He's promised that we're going to be resurrected too. And when we're resurrected and given a new world, a new place, all of this stuff that's broken in the world is going to be gone and we're going to be in a place of unbroken, unfettered experience with God. The reason biblical Christianity is so wonderful as a worldview is because it offers not only an explanation for why the world is as it is now, but it offers a hope that this isn't the way it's going to always be. Folks, that's not a crutch. That is the truth. What you're going through now is not always as it will be. And what you're going through now, what we're going through now, what we see, it's just a, a breath, a wind. You know, we're here one day and gone the next. We're like a flower. Blow it in the wind. But what we experience there is forever and forever and forever and forever. That's why Paul can say the sufferings of today are not worth comparing to the glories that are going there. Very practically, I mean, this is a philosophical question. But very practically, church, here's what that means. Just hold on. I know some of what you're going through is hard. I know some of what you're going through is way harder than anything I can ever dream about. I've talked to some of you about the stuff you've been through. Just hold on. Or rather... Realize that he will hold you fast, like we sang the other week. Realize he's holding on to you, and it's going to get way, way, way better one day. And that 
That may not answer the question for your friend that asks you the problem of evil. But that certainly helps me get through it. By the way, one last thing. If you do ever get asked the question, why is there evil in the world if you believe that there's a good, good God? Turn the question around. Don't feel the obligation to answer all that question. Ask them, why is there good in the world? And how do you know what is good? You know, if, if answering the question of the problem of evil is hard for you, I can guarantee you them explaining why there's good and evil in the world is going to be hard for them. And if they have a, an answer for that, then uh, tell them you're praying for them and walk away. Uh, in other words, we don't, have to have, we don't always have to have answers. Because we have a God who has all the answers. And again, that's not a crutch, that's just the truth. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 